All right, so Dr. Tim Kimmel loves it when churches and families are healthy and strong. He loves it even more when churches work as a team, which is what we're trying to do now. Tim is the founder and executive director of Family Matters, whose goal is to see families transformed by God's grace into instruments of reformation and restoration. Tim develops resources for families and churches and conducts conferences across the country on the unique pressures that confront today's families. Not only is Tim a well-known speaker, he has authored many books, including Grace-Based Parenting. Just how many of you have read Grace-Based Parenting in here? Anybody? I, I have, yeah, okay, good. But also Raising Kids for True Greatness, Little House on the Freeway, and most recently Connecting Church and Home. Tim and Darcy count their role as parents and grandparents as one of their greatest joys. God has blessed them with four children, their spouses, and a growing flock of of grandchildren. And before I bring Tim up here, I just want to let you know that uh, the type of speaking uh, and the way that uh, that Tim is going to be able to move through this evening is, is going to, I, I believe, if history is any indication, is going to create a desire in you to get more, get more from him. And so I asked him to please bring his resources, his books and CDs and things like that. And so those are on the table back there. And uh, you can see Stephanie uh, at the end of the evening, if you want to buy any of those things, they, they will be there for sale. Uh, I asked him to bring those because uh, I knew that there would be people here who would want the, those as a resource as well. So would you all please uh, welcome Tim Kimmel. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, raising kids is a lot of work, a lot of demands. If I could uh, compare it to anything, uh, I was a kid, I went to a circus, and I saw this guy that he was kind of dressed up like a clown, which is also appropriate sometimes when you feel like uh, you're parenting kids, and, and he had, did that trick where you spin plates on a stick. Have you ever seen a guy do that where they put it on a stick and they spin it? And, and I've always wanted to do that, especially with someone else's dishes, and, um, but he, he, he went and he, he, he put a plate on a stick and he spun it. And then he put another one and another one and another one. And the more he added, the, the crazier it got because the first one would start to teeter or the third. Or the, he's running around like a crazy person trying to th- keep these things going. And it reminded me so much of what it's, trying to, what it's like trying, just trying to live today in the hurried pace that we all live at. Uh, and especially if you're a young person and you're on the front side of life, you know, you, you got, oh, I just got four plates here. I get, you got a Maybe you're finishing up a degree program, you're starting a career, uh, you've fallen in love with somebody, or maybe you just got married, you, you got church, you got friends. But the cool thing is, there's an app for this, see? And so we can actually figure out how to keep all this stuff going straight, and, and everything's fine, and, and you get married, and then some of these come along. These, these little children, see? And they come along, and, and you gotta start spinning them, and they're in between. And these require a lot more velocity to keep them going smoothly. We had four kids, all of them strong-willed. Of course, everybody thinks their kid's strong-willed, but we did too, and, and, and so we had these really demanding kids, and, and all, but once again, we're, you know, we've read a few books, and we've been around the block a few times, and so we thought we were pretty clever, and then one of these came along. This is a teenager. <laughs> it's not a saucer anymore or a salad plate, and it's not a plate yet. It just thinks it is wants all the privileges of a plate, but doesn't have any money. 
and sure has a mind of its own when you try and put some spin on it, doesn't it? Well, you all are young parents. I see all your young kids running around here, and, and, and for you, you just think, well, I'm a ways away from the teenage years. Actually, you're not. In a very short period of time, life's, you're going to see that you're on the threshold of that. It's a wonderful time of raising kids, but so is the, t- the early years, the toddler years, and, and, and those elementary and tweener years. They're all wonderful but it can get the best of us, can't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, another analogy I, I think of often when I think of what it's like trying to raise kids today and be a family. It's like trying to put together a fairly complex um, picture puzzle, but you've lost the picture on the box. You're not quite sure what this thing's supposed to look like when you put it together. And unbeknownst to you, the force, uh, our culture that is antagonistic to our values has thrown some pieces in that box that look like they fit, but they don't. And some well-intended but misguided Christian voices have thrown some pieces in there that look like they fit, but they don't. And the more you try and make them fit, the harder it gets. And so what I want to do is kind of step back. I want to kind of first take a, a, a look through the, the telescope at this whole thing of family, raising family in the era that we're at, and then, and then kind of zero down and, and take a little more of a microscopic look at your life and your role as a mother and a father. God was not um, vague at all in what his plan was for passing his heart of love, mercy, and grace down through the generations. He leads right out of the blocks in Genesis chapter one, uh, verse 26, he said, he said, let us make man in our own image. And in the image of God, he made him. Male and female, he created them. So a single creation created the two genders. He made the man and then out of the man's side, he made the woman. And he says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then in chapter two, he says, for this cause, a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Uh, God had created the universe, and, and, and he wanted to put his crowning piece of creation in place, and that was the human race. And he had to formulate it in some way for, for it to be the most efficient and effective way to pass his heart down through the generation. Now think of it, he could have made a company he could have made a country club. He could have made a, 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 a country, you know? He, he could have made a committee. He didn't, he formed it into a family. He created a family right out of the blocks and he put a mother and father as the, as the, the pace setters of what's happening underneath. And, and that's how he meant for his heart to be transferred down through the generations. And yet in Genesis chapter 3, you find out right away, here comes the snake having a cigarette with Eve out in, the, in the, uh, uh, the, the garden. And here's Adam doing exactly the wrong thing when a snake is out talking to your wife in the garden. Men, when there's a snake in a garden, in your wife's garden, what is your job? It's real simple. What is your job? You kill the snake. There's a snake in my wife's garden. You go get a shovel or something, you kill it. That's what you're supposed to do. But no, he said, isn't that interesting? And down we go. And sin entered the earth. And, and, and it marred. It just wrecked this whole picture of what, it, it like put a big crack through the family photo that God was creating. But his strategy has not changed. It's, it's been the same 
even after sin entered the world. In fact, if you took the Bible and just isolated the names of families in the Bible, there's tens of thousands of them. The Bible is a story of families. And so God created family. Now we have other things that that fill up our life, but he wanted you to know that this role you're playing is is huge. in fact, I think it's, more, it's, it's, more, it's bigger than most of us realize as we're going through it. You, one thing, you as moms and dads are actually getting a chance to write part of the script of history. Neil Postman is a sociologist, and he has this great line. He says, children are a gift we send to a time we will not see. And so you actually play a vital role in what's next. After you're off the scene, you get to play that. But, there's, but, but that's, that's even putting it in too small of a context. The role you're playing as a mother and father is much bigger than that. It has to do with how long your children live. And I actually know how long every one of your kids will, will live. Regardless of their gender, their, you give me their birthday, I can tell you exactly how long they're going to live because the answer's the same. Your children live forever. You gave birth to a soul that lasts forever. And because that's how long this child's gonna last, it makes sense that we raise these kids with forever in mind. That that we gotta keep that bigger context in, 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 in front of us as we go through this role of raising them. But it's real easy when we listen to the, the prevailing voices out there, start to feel marginalized in our role, especially if you're a mother. Um, I mean, for instance, there, there's some moms, maybe you're one of them, who uh, you, you all have decided to configure your home where your, your primary focus is your children, and you, you're, the, the, we call it stay-at-home moms, and you're, you're there and you're providing uh, a lot of care to them on a daily basis. You're involved in their life. Uh, and, and, and sometimes our culture wants women doing that role to feel marginalized because they feel like, well, you should, I should be out having a career and, and, and I should be maybe contributing more to the financial part of the family, which, by the way, you're contributing huge to the financial part of the family just by the role you're playing, but you feel marginalized. But then on the other side, there's women who are in the marketplace and, 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 and the, our, our culture makes them feel guilty thinking, I, I, I wish I had more time with my children. And some of them are in the marketplace because the configuration of their family kind of demands it. You, you, you gotta be out there. Others, it's because God has clearly called them to a role in the marketplace. Now, here's the, here's the, here's the thing you need to keep in mind. All those options are completely legitimate before God, and all those options of whether you're at home uh, uh, every day or you're out in the marketplace and, 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 and feeling other ways to meet the kids' needs and touching their heart and, when you are home, all those are, are, are ordained by God are completely legitimate and you gotta make sure you're not letting the world whisper in your ear things that only make you feel guilty or frustrated or marginalized because that's just not the way it is. Plus, if you understand the bigger role we're playing in a kid's life, you can see that you can... You can um, Meet that role regardless of what configuration you have. And, and I really want to encourage you that, 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 that another thing, I think if, if, we, if you are, are, are staying at home, you don't want to marginalize the women that aren't. And, and if you're in a marketplace, you don't want to marginalize the women that are at home. You, you know, we're, we're all trying to pull this together. We should all desire 
as, a, as, as part of the body of Christ to want to do everything we can to encourage one another to love and good deeds and help each other out. But I, I, I see the cultural poison of comparison just getting the best of so many people out there, and it's just always in front of us. It's pandemic, so you gotta stay above that. Now, with that in mind, just be careful taking your cues from culture. In fact, I would suggest it even further. Don't take your cues from culture. And here's why. Because our culture doesn't know what it's talking about. It is completely and totally lost and clueless. Now, if I were on a trip, and I'm getting a little confused of where I'm going, and I stop and ask directions, I want to ask directions from somebody that, two things, knows where I'm trying to go, and desires me to get there the best path. Our culture is antagonistic to our values. It doesn't know what it's talking about. So don't let that, don't take your cues from that. We want to take our cues from, from, from the Lord. Now, I want to put the, uh, let's, you know, we, done a, we kind of looked at a kind of a big thing. Let's kind of start narrowing down on this role as parents because I think when we actually see what our, what our, more of our biblical role is in these children's lives, I think it makes it easier to meet that role and do the other things that go along with it. Now, most parents, if you ask them what's their, what's your primary role, uh, they list off the standings, food, clothing, shelter, health, education, and welfare of my children. Now, it goes without saying that if you have children, yeah, those are your jobs and, and all. But, but by the way, it goes without saying if you have pets, that that is your job. If you have a dog, we expect you to feed it, clothe it, shelter it, and all that stuff, and train it, and so forth. So, so you, have, you have a breathing person in your life. You got to do those. But those are B priorities. If we were to step back and say, what is the bigger priority that God has called us to? I, I, I like to put it this way. I, I think the primary role of a parent is to connect to the heart of their child in such a way that you condition that child's heart to have a heart for God. Let me say that again. The role of a parent is to connect to the heart of their child in such a way that you condition that child's heart to have a heart for God. And so heart connection is our bigger job our bigger responsibility, and you can do that even though there's other, other priorities in your life that you also have to pay. You have to go out and make a living. You, 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 know, you have friends. You, you have church. You can do that. But this is one that you can do. It can, you can just maintain it all the way. And I want to kind of show you one of the best ways, I think, to do it because I, I believe there's an, there's an overarching theme in the Bible that you can build your family around that dramatically raises the odds of you being able to fulfill this higher calling of connecting to your child's heart, maintaining that connection, and from that connection, just conditioning them more and more to have a heart for God. Um, let me tell you our story real quickly. Dar Darcy and I were um, married for eight years, and uh, we, uh, when we were in grad school for four years, we were uh, at that. We had chosen if we could, let's not conceive here. And once we get out of grad school, then then we'll start the the family. Well, we got out and we started trying, but it turned out that we just weren't. It wasn't working. And we went to the doctor, and, they, and the doctor said, "Look, I don't think you guys are going to be able to have biological children." And so uh, we started the adoption process, and and then. Um, uh, 
that's when we conceived Karis, our first child. In fact, we were, uh, we were in the adoption process when we conceived Cody. And so, uh, don't ask me how that all works, but anyway, we were married eight years before we had any children. Well, when we realized we were going to have children, we did like, I think, a lot of conscientious young Christian parents do. Uh, we, we thought, well, you know, we've never done this before, and we've watched our parents do it, but we'd like to maybe have a little more help than that. Um, so we started reading the books that were out there on parenting. Now, there, there weren't nearly as many as there are now, and there were some helpful things in there, but, but we noticed that they kind of fell into two prevailing categories of where the author seemed to be coming from, and it was appealing to two, I, what we felt were um, um, half-baked, distorted starting points for parenting. The, the, one, the one that we saw that seemed to, be the bigger one in the books, and it's the one that's still there today among young Christian families, is fear, what I call a fear-based starting point on your role as a parent. And I see a lot of fear-based Christian parents out there. And by the way, frankly, I mean, when you look around at what we're up against, there's, there's reasons to be concerned about raising your kids in this world that we're living in. Um, and, and all, but, but, but when they, they start getting afraid, then the next thing you know, they're going to make their strategy for how they raise their kids to accommodate those fears. But here's the problem with that. You see, if we're followers of Jesus, we should be the last people afraid of just about anything. And, and, and I'm not exaggerating. I'm just saying we should be the last people afraid of just about anything. The only thing we're supposed to be afraid of are the things God meant for us to be afraid of. Like, I'm afraid to cross um, I-10 on foot uh, at any time of the day. And that's a good fear. That's something I should never do, because you can get killed. But, but, but to be afraid of, of, of um, Hollywood, or contemporary music, or the internet, or uh, cohabitating neighbors, or whatever... You, but I, I would hear these fears, and so there was a lot of books, the, the handful of books we were reading seemed to accommodate that, and they would recommend more isolation, cloistering, really having a very small group of hand-picked, very well-vetted, spiritually vetted friends that that's all you expose your kids to. In fact, there was a, um, there was a group of families that actually had bought up a whole cul-de-sac in Scottsdale, and they called it the Christian cul-de-sac, and they were all excited about it because, because the, the kids there, they could go to each other's house, and, it was, and there was verses on the wall, and there was no profanity, and there was never anything bad on the TV or in the, and, and the music, and, and you never had to list your house if you had to move, you just say, hey, we had to move. And right away, there was a bidding war. I'm going to raise my kids on the Christian cul-de-sac. <laughs> Darcy and I would have rather had our toenails rotated and our gums scraped than raise our kids on a, at a place like that. Because God hasn't called us to raise a bunch of safe kids. He's called us to raise a bunch of strong kids. And there's a different way you go about that. And we didn't want to raise them recklessly and throw them to the wolves, of course not. But we wanted to be able to raise them in such a way that they, they, could, they, could, they could be in the middle of a hostile world, but because of what our family represented and what our faith represented and how we were, how we were living that out around them, they could see that you not only survive in a hostile world, you can actually thrive in it. We wanted to raise them in a way that, that, they, they, that, that no matter how hostile the world got, it only made their spiritual passions 
deeper and greater. And so, so that, one, that was one that, you know, we thought, boy, that's a dead on arrival plan. We don't want, want that one. And then the other side that we saw, was, there was a lot of performance-based Christianity in the books. That, you know, we're basically trying to get our kids to act a certain way, look a certain way, talk a certain way, like nice little Christian evangelical kids. And, um, and, and so you saw themes like uh, what I would call sin management, want to keep our kids from sinning and keep them from being exposed to sin. And like I say, I'm not saying be reckless and not have any standards, but, but first of all, keep your kids from sinning. Uh, sorry, you gave birth to sinners. That's what they do. They came from the womb, sinners. And so we sh- to keep them from sinning, is, uh, you know, it just doesn't even build a, you can't build a biblical case for that. Your, our, your, your kids are going to sin. Your job is to catch them, see, and help them rethink that as a lifestyle, uh, and, and then also present, the, put them in a culture, an environment in your home that ultimately gives them reason to have, uh, in, in, invite Jesus center stage in their life and have the real power over sin inside of them. So, so we saw that this kind of evangelical behavioral modification stuff, and once again, we said that's a dead-on arrival plan. So, and yet, we were surprised that Having been to seminary, and Frank's been to seminary, and Cody's been to seminary, you go, you, you, when you go to seminary, you, you study a lot of different theologies. And it's amazing how the theologies, they have theology on. And they, obviously they have it on, on uh, God and the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus and, and sin and blood. And they have it on, uh, uh, the, uh, the, they have it on the church and, 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 and end times, you name it. And I studied all these theologies, but never once did I study a theology of family. And I didn't go to a pushover seminary. But they never unpacked the theology of family to me. And I thought that was ironic. They didn't. Now, they gave us some great teaching and help on families but never a theology of family. And, but for Darcy and I, we just felt like it's just not like God to give us the, this kind of responsibility over a person's life and not give us a path to follow. It's just not like him. But if you make the right observations and you ask the Bible the right questions, sometimes you find the answer's been in front of you all along. And Darcy, the brains of our operation, made an observation and that led to a question that helped us see an easier way of pulling this thing off and understanding how to do this. She said, no, wait a minute, think about this, Tim. God is a parent. Uh, when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, pray our Father who art in heaven. The, the, the paternal metaphor is the most used metaphor of God in the Bible. We are his children. So God's a parent. He's, we're his children. He's parenting us. Here was the question. I wonder if we could study him as a parent in the Bible, quantify that, and maybe use that as a guideline for how we raise our kids. And once she made that observation and asked that question, we started looking at the Bible and realized it's been in front of us all along. This wasn't hidden in some little uh, crevice. This has been right on the surface all along. And then, and, 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 and one thing we notice about God's prevailing attitude towards us as his children is that he's so gracious to us. He's a God of grace. It's his grace that brings us to him through salvation, but we saw that that was not supposed to be limited to salvation, which I think a lot of Christians do. They limit his grace to salvation. He meant for it now to wash over us, transform us, and define us, especially in our relationships, most of them especially in our marriage and with our children. And so as we started studying God as a parent, we saw that you could actually 
uh, start to see that like four different dimensions that he comes, his grace works in our life and some very specific ways within those dimensions. And then we thought, well, how can we capture this in our own mind? And this did, by the way, this didn't happen in a little Bible study. This took years when our kids were young as we were really milling over this and trying to figure out how to make this work for us. But we ended up coming up with an analogy uh, that, that, that we thought took something pretty complex to us and, 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 and melted it down in ways uh, uh, that, that we could get our head and heart around it. Um, in fact, we, I have found that when, when you take something complex and you can actually distill it down to a paper napkin, then, then, then you can really get your head around it. And, and, and that's, that's what we did. We took God's grace and we, we, we actually put it down to a, a paper napkin. On your desk, on your, there, there's, a, there's a little card there that shows a, an example of what I've got. And by the way, we do not have time to go into this. I just want to show you on one side, the first side, you see there's four different levels or dimensions of God's grace, the way God's grace works in our heart. He meets our inner needs, see there at the bottom. He gives our hearts freedom. He sets our hearts free. He builds character muscles into us through his grace. And then he's always aiming us at something bigger than here and now and ourselves. He's aiming us at True greatness. True greatness is a passion when we have a passionate love for Jesus that shows itself in an unquenchable love and concern for others. And we kept seeing this. Now, if you flip it over, you'll see the very specific ways, tactical ways that you can meet those three inner needs, give those four freedoms, and so forth. Now, so, so this helped us out so much as we started getting that, and this became a guide to us that we could use as we're trying to work with our kids because we were just as goofy as other parents are out there, and we, we would make mistakes, we would get it wrong, we would whatever, and, and, and we said, Lord, we want your grace to be the defining feature of our home. We want this to be a haven of your grace so that, so that in here our kids can really sense what your heart is like. So we wanted to connect to their heart in such a way that we can condition their heart to have a heart for God, and we found his grace could lead the way. And now with that in mind, what I'd like to do is take that second level on, on setting the kids' hearts free, and I'd like to unpack that one for you and show you, give you a, an idea of what that's like, okay? And we'll spend the rest of our, 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 our minutes here doing that, and then we'll do some Q&A from there. Uh, but I do want you to know that we have resources that unpack all of that, and then there's also ways that you can... Um, uh, resources that you can download at our website that you can really hear us completely unpack this for you so that you can make it your own. Uh, but, but I want to take those, those four freedoms because of all the things that I think um, define what God's grace looks like, lived out with sweat all over it. You know, in the, in, in the, the demands of day-to-day living, I think these four do. And, and so if, if you want to kind of try and uh, follow with me on that, uh, do your best on it. I, I want to I show you, if, if you give your, the people you love, your children, these four needs, and you make it the ongoing way that you run your home, you will be representing uh, a God's heart of grace so well to them. Now, I probably need to hit something here because I, I just sense that maybe some of you are struggling a little bit with this whole grace concept because you're thinking, well, Tim, what about truth? Where's the truth in this thing? Because a lot, you know, I, and I, I think that's a legitimate pushback on the concept of grace that people say, uh, what about truth? What about rules and regulations? What about law and order? Because we think, well, you give this grace, the next thing you know, they're getting away with murder. Okay, now, let's just step back and make sure that we understand what we're talking about here. Because you just described nice. You didn't describe grace. 
Grace and nice are not synonyms. Grace can appear nice, but sometimes grace gets in your grill. Grace based in your face, love. And so, so, so in John chapter one, verse 14, it says the word became flesh, and it's a capital W on that, the word, and, and it's, it's another name for Jesus in the Bible. Jesus took on human form. We're gonna celebrate this next month on Christmas. And he lived among us. We beheld his glory, glory as the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Now, it said he was full of grace and truth. Question, what were the percentages of those? 50-50? 75-25? a shift based on circumstances? What, what were the percentages of the grace and the truth? What was it? It was 100% of both. He was full of truth. He was full of grace. And so, as Christians, I think we tend to camp on the truth side because it's the easiest one to call. Here's the rules and regulations. Here's what the Bible says. Here's how we, we here's the verses. You, you, and so we get on that. But he was also 100% grace. And so, when people say, where's the truth in this? It's right where it's always been. Inse- inseparable from grace. Uh, just because you're showing grace doesn't mean the rules and regulations are, aren't there because I, I would say to you, is Jesus dealing with you in grace? And you say, well, yeah. Did he throw the rule book overboard with you? Did he say there's no more consequences to wrong behavior? No, it's all still there. The Bible says them whom he loves, he disciplines, he corrects. And so grace and truth are inseparable. Now, I, I, I do believe you can have truth in your home and not grace. You, can, you can't have grace in your home and not truth. If you have that, you just have nice in your home. You don't have grace. But you can have truth in your home and not grace. Pharisees did it all day long. And so we've got to have these things together. And, and grace is giving somebody something they desperately need but don't necessarily deserve. And so let's, let's see what that looks like when it comes to these wonderful freedoms. The first freedom that, that uh, grace-based homes give their kids, they give them the freedom to be different, to be different. Now, now let me give you some synonyms for different so you understand where I'm coming from. Uh, because it sounds kind of, you know, safe. Well, how about this? They give them the freedom to be weird and bizarre and strange and goofy and quirky. Grace-based homes have room for those kind of children. Legalistic homes do not. Fear-based homes do not. Sin management homes do not. They have no room for weird, bizarre, strange, goofy, quirky kids because those kids annoy us. And you say, stop that. Why? Well, you're annoying me. They also embarrass us. And so you say, stop that. Why? Well, you're embarrassing me. And it's not uncommon for us to make moral issues out of what they're doing, being weird, bizarre, strange, goofy, quirky, or worse, making them biblical issues. So your little kid is playing. Your little boy goes out in the backyard, and he goes and does a headbutt into the tree. And you think, what's wrong with you? He's a little boy. They do headbutts into trees. They, they don't make any sense. They just, you say, stop that. And boom, he hits the, the, the garage door. That, that's what they do. They're little boys. You have a little girl. She's never alone, even if she's an only child. Never. She's always talking to imaginary friends. And she names them. They're not things. They're people. You give her four or five rocks, she will name them, make a family. This is the dad. His name is Earl. And his, his, his mom, she's Gertrude. And here are the kids. Give her four or five Barbies, what'll she do? She'll play the view. She lines them up there like it's the view and they'll debate something. <laughs> they do that. 
her little brother comes in, sees a Barbie doll, what's he do? He bites the head off, throws it like a grenade, and makes sounds, explosive sounds. <laughs> They're weird. Then they become teenagers. They decide they want a new hairdo. Your son's over at his friend's house. I'm thinking about getting a new hairdo. I'll help. Uh, lie down in the grass, cover your eyes. He gets out the weed eater, you know, and, and trims things up. And then they get out, his mother, go into their mother's medicine cabinet, get out that L'Oreal or Clairol or whatever, mix this junk all together and put it in his hair. It's a little shade of blue and green and pink and yellow and whatever. And they spike it out and he comes home to show his mother his new hairdo. And she looks at him and says, I don't think Jesus would be very pleased with your hair. Isn't it interesting how we go for the heavy artillery when our kids are really freaking us out? We have no problem dropping the biggest name in the universe on our side. Which, by the way, when we do that, we break one of the big ten that they etched in stone on Sinai. We take God's name in vain. We miss, and he said, by the way, don't misapply my name to your, your agendas. <laughs> That's not my, my name's holy. We don't, we don't do that. And yet we do it all the time when we panic. I use hair as an example. Only right, right now, kids' hair is conservative. But trust me, those cycles come. You know, it cycles through. Frank and I have been around a while. We've seen it. We were there for a while with the long hair. And, and, and it comes through every, you know, generation or two. There'll be a bunch of weird-looking hairdos, and you'll have your issues. But because of that, and I've been through several of these, I've had to referee fights between parents and kids over their hair. And so I thought, I wonder what God actually says about hair in the Bible. And one of the things I do for my Bible reading every year is I read through the Bible of Genesis through Revelation every year. The good news about that is that I can, I can actually keep my eye out for something. And when th that one particular year, I put a little bookmark in there, and I said, keep your eye out for what God has to say about hair. I've read the entire Bible, and I know what God has to say about hair. He says, I, I don't care your hair. Express yourself. You know, use it like a lab experiment for all I care. And some of you might want to grab the chance while you can, because it's going to bail on you. <laughs> he doesn't care. Now, can you have arbitrary rules on your kid's hair? As a of course you can. You're the parents. You can make arbitrary rules about that but we just don't want to make them moral issues because they're not a moral issue. You don't make them a biblical issue because they're not a biblical issue. But, but because, because when grace isn't in place, when we're not seeing somebody through that changed life of, uh, the, of the cross and the redeemed life of the cross and the work of Jesus on the cross, then we tend to see them uh, much more of a, how they affect us and impact us instead of who they are. Uh, and so... But when we do this, when we make it a moral issue or a biblical issue, we shove a wedge between that kid's heart and God and that kid's heart and ourself. Well, guess what? We're supposed to maintain a heart connection then. We want to connect to their heart in such a way that we condition their heart to have a heart for God. God is a gracious God. God doesn't make issues out of these things. So once again, you can have arbitrary rules that are because you're the parents. Just don't make them moral is issues if they're not, or biblical issues if they're not. Uh, we have a son named Colt. I think Colt is on the church here and played the drums some, and, and he's, uh, he's real tall, but he was tall in junior high. And he asked me, Dad, can I, can, I, uh, can I grow my hair long this year? And I said, well, sure, give it your best shot. I mean, you're gonna have to grow it a long time before it's as long as mine was when I was in junior high, but give it your best shot. 
And he grew it real long, and it looked so nice. It was just beautiful, long hair. I was speaking at a church in Miami, Florida. I was actually done, I was heading, I was in a cab going to the, to the um, airport when my phone went off, and it was Colt. And he called and said, Dad, it's spring break. It was like in April, and he says, Dad, it's spring break. I said, I know, we're going to have a lot of fun. He said, Dad, I was wondering, can I have a mohawk? Can I have a mohawk? And I thought about it. I said, you know what? That would be fun. Yeah, you can have a mohawk. Look, I'm going to be home tonight around 7 o'clock. I'll cut you a great mohawk. And you can have it all week, but on Saturday we're going to have to buzz it off because your school doesn't allow mohawks. Great. I hung up, but you need to know something. I was calculating in something. I was calculating in church. Because at that time, we were attending Scottsdale Bible, and at that time they had evening services that were matches of the, they were the same thing as the morning service, the exact same service, but they did all the main youth things in the evening, so they brought a lot of the families in in the evening. And that's when he was going to church. I'd say, okay, church will be over. Cut it off Saturday. He hung up the phone, and his sister Shiloh was listening. What did Dad say? He said, I can have one. He's going to cut it off, cut it for me when he gets home tonight. She said, I know how to cut one of those. (laughs) They got out the clippers and everything, and she cut him a mohawk. They took Elmer's glue, and they glued that thing up, and he went to church. And I'm sure it sucked the oxygen out of some of the people's lungs, and they were wondering what happened to our security system here at this church, and, and, all that. and then I'm sure some people looked, isn't that the son of the guy that writes the books about parenting? <laughs> but what was cool, what was so cool about that, that event is that our, at the time, our, our senior pastor was a man named Daryl, and Daryl was out in between services, and he saw Colt, and he looked at him, he said, Colt Kimball, is that you? Get over here, I gotta see this. And he went, that's the greatest mohawk I've ever seen. How do you get it to stay up like that? Glue. And he said, I, I, I wish I had a camera to get a picture of me and Colt Kimmel with his mohawk. I'd put it in my, my, my that is the greatest mohawk. Because you see, you need to know something. Darcy and I brought our kids to a grace-based church every Sunday. It was very important to us that we brought our kids to a church where the people running it know what matters and what doesn't matter. Man looks on the outside. God looks on the heart. This, is a, this kid had a fine heart. He loved God. He loved Jesus. He loved his mom and dad. He was respectful. He loved his siblings. He worked hard in school. He was a good friend. He just wanted to have a mohawk. No big deal. Well, you know, it's easy to figure this all out when you're wor- working, looking through a, 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 a perspective of grace. You see, God sent his son through time and space, to intervene on our behalf to save us from something we couldn't save ourselves from, and that's our utter doom. Because we were sinners separated from God, and he came and took our place, he took our sin and our shame, he paid the price for that so that we wouldn't have to, and, he, and, 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 and then as a, as a gift uh, beyond that, he says, not only will I forgive you your sins, you, you put your faith in me, I'll give you eternal life. That's the gospel. And he says, now I want this grace. I've given you something you don't deserve, but you desperately need. I want this to be the prevailing feature of your heart. That's how I treat you. Why don't you treat others? In fact, that's the one-sentence summary of grace-based parenting. It's just treat your kids the way God treats you. And that's guided us so many times, like when the kids have pushed every button on us. All we want to do is we wish that Fisher-Price made a taser or something. Just, you know, you don't... You don't want to injure them. You just want to lock them up really good. And you say, what is wrong with you? Or, 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 or you know, sell them on eBay or something. But, but, and, and you say, is that how God treats me? 
when I push his buttons, when I let him down, when I, when I, I, I defy him. And so it, it helps us so much. Uh, by, by the way, you might say, well, Tim, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you think sometimes the way somebody's appearing on the outside is representing a free fall in their heart on the inside that they're really having some real struggles? Of course, sometimes that is. My question is, does it make any sense to attack the outside? The outside is just a symptom of the problem on the inside. And so, once again, deal with the heart. Fix the heart, the outside takes care of itself. If the heart isn't a problem, don't worry about the outside. That's how grace helps us. It gives us the freedom to be different. Let's look at, let's look at the next one. And by the way, we have a tool out there that helps you understand this better when it comes to uh, dialing in on the unique way God hardwired your kids. Because you know, uh, you know the, the, those four quadrants of personalities they go all the way back to Plato's day. You know, he, he called them Greek words like phlegmatic and caloric and sanguine and melancholy. And they made them colors and they made them animals. And we had a guy that uh, turned them into, he made, called them countries. Control country, fun country, peace country, perfect country. And then he made this an online thing for married couples. But then he got a hold of me and said, hey, I want to do something for parents. Help them figure out what their kids are hard, how their kids are hardwired. But that's not my expertise. Will you help me? So we worked on this thing for a couple of years. And we field tested it. And we created like a game you play with the kids. It's called the, it's called the kids flag page. Let me just show you this one little tool here. It's a kids flag page. And it, and, and it plays like a game. And it has these motivation cards. And you just ask the kid these, these things. And by the way, it's accurate down to like five years old. Like, I, I move fast. Uh, once you know what you want to do, you get going right away. Now, is that always me? Sometimes me? Never me. Yeah, let the kid answer that question. Or, I have an eye for art. I like to paint and draw and do creative things. Is that always? Sometimes? Never. I can do it myself. You don't wait around for help. You get going. Always? Sometimes? Never. One more. I make people laugh. It's easy for you to make people laugh and everything funny. everything's funny. Well, the point is, after you do that, you get them to, the, into these three categories. You take the always me, you spread them out, you help them pick their top, their top six, and then out of that, the number one, and then you, then you can make it into a little card here that shows this is their, like the kids' flag. This is Sharla, and her home country is peace country, but there's always one that you're, you feel comfortable with, and hers is control country. That's her adopted country. And it's kind of cool, and there's a, a it, it just kind of helps because what, what, if we don't understand how God hardwired our kids, many times we can be working against the grain. It's, it's much like sending your kids out with great shoes, but they're on the wrong feet and the wrong size. They're too small for them. Well, they got good shoes on, but it's, it's uncomfortable. Or putting them in clothes that are always too small for them. And so once we know what they're like, uh, it helps. But the problem is they haven't had those kind of things to work on children. They always start at adult level. So your kid goes off to college and comes back and says, hey, look, I did this personality thing. And look, this is how God hardwired me. Look at it. I had no idea. All these years, I just thought you were really creepy. I didn't know. And so it just kind of helps so you can work with them. You know, in, in Proverbs 22, 6, it says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. And so we, we need to be, we need to help, help our kids by giving them the freedom to be different. Let me give you another one. Giving children the freedom to be vulnerable. Grace-based homes, give them the freedom to be vulnerable. Meaning they don't have to wear masks around us. They don't have to be so guarding their heart around us. They know that their heart is safe and what's going on inside of it is safe with us. Um, they can verbalize their doubts, their fears, without fear of them being attacked. Let me give you a quick story. I was going into the ninth grade 
uh, at a um, high school back in Maryland, in Annapolis, Maryland. I was going to go to Annapolis High School. And I was very excited because it was a big 5A school. I was going to play football for their famous coach. The girls were prettier. The rock and roll was louder. There was more of both. This was going to be great. But that summer, in between my eighth and ninth year, several hundred of us incoming freshmen got letters in the mail from the Board of Education saying that because of overcrowded conditions, we were being annexed to an elementary school in downtown Annapolis. And so instead of going to the big high school, we're back in elementary school. And there were many trade-offs. Probably the biggest one was in the area of phys ed. Because normally, for phys ed, you'd put on a phys ed outfit, and you'd go out and play, and it was a very humid area. No problem. You sweat. No problem. You take a shower, put your school clothes back on. We didn't have that option. We had to do everything in our school clothes. There was a gymnasium on the second floor of a county building, a, a block or so from the school, and I went in there one winter morning to, um, for phys ed, and I got very excited as soon as I got in there because there was a trampoline open right in the middle of the gym, and I got excited because I'd never jumped on a trampoline before. They weren't pieces of equipment in backyards back then. I got very excited. Well, the, the, the PE coach came out. We all gathered around. He looked at all of us. He came back to me. He said, Kimmel, take off your shoes, leave on your socks, climb up here and follow my instructions. And so I, 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 climb, I climbed up there, took my shoes off, but as soon as I did, I realized I had holes in both of my socks, both of my socks. And one of my friends noticed this, and he wanted to make sure everybody, oh, isn't this sad? Look at Tim's toes sticking out. We need to take up a collection and buy Tim some real socks. Now, were that to happen to me now at my age, I could care less what people think about that kind of stuff. But when you're in that quarter of time, that, that 13, 14, 15, 16, that's the time when kids are unusually self-conscious. This became a real embarrassing moment to me. It was like he was putting down my family's economics, which, by the way, we were lower middle class. We paid our bills in time. We didn't miss a meal, but we always went on and think, get as much mileage out of your clothing as you can. And up to that point, I thought that was a good idea until I was up there doing exactly what he was telling me to do, but all I was thinking about was my toes sticking out. When I stood down, the other guys were jumping. I, I, obviously, I'm going to go home. I'm going to get out my socks. I'm going to darn every pair of socks. I will never let this happen to me again. When the class was done, the bell, you know, bell rang, the coach dismissed us, he took off. I went and got on my shoes, went down to the stage at the end, put on my coat, my, got my books, and I went down the stairs, uh, uh, down to the ground, to, the ground to, to go across the street to the school, and I hear my name, Kimmel, wait up. It was a coach. And he came down and he pulled me aside and said, Tim, I want to tell you why I called on you to do, do, to do the demonstration. Tim, you're the most agile student in my class. And then he reached down and he pulled off his tennis shoe <laughs> and he had a big old hole in his sock. He's standing there, he's, he's just wiggling. He says, you, you know, us agile guys are tough on socks. <laughs> now go to class. And so I'm heading over to class and the whole way I'm thinking, what's agile? Because I had never heard the word before. I, I was a pathetic student, but I was going to English class, and they had these big dictionaries. They actually loved it when you looked up a word without a gun held to your head, and I went over and I looked up agile. I'm glad I didn't find argyle. That would have been confusing. But I, I looked up agile, and I read for the first time in my life that I could, with, I could move with speed, ease, elegance, and liveliness. And I read for the first time in my life that I was mentally alert and quick-witted. No one had ever told me that before. I wrote it down. I memorized it. And I did a 180 degree turn in two major areas of my life, academics. I was always told I'm average in that. And athletics, they said, you're a good utility player. Not after that. 
In fact, they had a contest a couple weeks later. Who could do the most sit-ups in the ninth grade? And I set the record that year. And by the way, they weren't these crunch things you do at the gym now. You can do thousands of those. These are these arthritic things that they banned from the school system where you had to lay down flat and somebody hold your feet down and you had to come up and cross over. And I, and I, did, I did hundreds of those. And I set the record that year. And I set up, in fact, they, they let me sit up through PE class. I went through English class and through lunch. And they were sending out runners. My stomach mus- muscles hurt for days after that. But I didn't care because I was agile. <laughs> you know, it took a while for me to put the pieces together, figure out why the coach disappeared so quickly after class. He had to get into his little office, get his tennis shoe off, get the scissors out, cut the hole in his sock, put it back on, and chase me down. He didn't go around with holes in his socks. He's a PE coach. They get new shoes and socks as part of the deal. But he saw, an, he saw a vulnerable kid that needed help. And he touched his life with grace. Now listen, I want to tell you something. Our children have those kind of moments all the time. Someone has described childhood as a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year battle to keep from being embarrassed. We need grace to help these kids through this. Let me... Let, let me, let me uh, uh, mention, remember Paul had a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and he asked God each time, when they, you know, they debate what it was, regardless of what it was, it was something that would kept him from, he felt, serving God to the maximum. And he went to God several times to, to take it away. And each time God said no. And finally he said, look, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weaknesses. And so we, we have a chance through the, 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 the vulnerable abilities of our children to treat them the way God treats us. And I love this in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Grace-based families give the kids they love the freedom to be different and vulnerable. Look at this one. They give them the freedom to be candid. Meaning they can tell you what's on their mind, even if it's stuff you're not excited about hearing. Maybe it's an area of doubt about their faith. And they're saying, look, I'm sorry, but I just don't buy that, that Jesus is the only way that the Bible is the last word. I'm sorry, I just don't buy that. Look, this isn't a time to panic and hire you know, Wayne Grudem or some theolo- theolo- theology professor from, from the Phoenix Seminary here and duct tape them to your kid's face or something until the kid you know, cries. Smarter kids than yours and mine have doubted this stuff. And what we do, need to do is remain calm while their faith is on trial and show them what a confident faith looks like while they're working through this. Sometimes what they need to be candid with us about is frustration they're having with us. Because unless you're a perfect parent, and none of us are, you get it wrong sometimes. In fact, our kids don't need perfect parents. They just need grace-based imperfect parents. And one of the things grace-based imperfect parents do is they give their kids an outlet to voice frustration with us if we've got it wrong. And this comes straight from Hebrews chapter four. We do not have a great high priest that doesn't understand what it's like to be in our skin. He was not always tempted like we are, yet without sin. So come boldly to my throne of grace and find mercy. And, And so there's times when we come to God's throne and we're frustrated with him. Maybe something happened and you say, I don't get this, Lord. This is breaking my heart. And I know you could, you could intervene or I know you have control over this. He says, look, I have a big chest. Bring it to me. We can work through this. I'll tell this story. Poor Cody. Um, 
help, help bear with me here. I, I, he's told me I could tell this story. Um, he was, I guess, a junior in high school. The Arizona Diamondbacks had won the, uh, beaten the Yankees the year before in the, in the uh, World Series, and so he was getting ready for bed, and he, he came by, and I was, I was at the computer. He said, oh, Dad, I forgot. I need you to sign me out of school tomorrow by noon. I know, why, why do I need to do this? Well, because the, the, it's opening day of the Diamondbacks, and my friend Steve has tickets behind the dugout, and he's invited me to go with him. Well, for some stupid reason, I felt like I needed to teach him about personal responsibility. And I said, Cody, you're a student, and you start like at 8 in the morning, and you get off at 3. But, Dad, they're going to have F-16s fly over. Well, I know that's, that would be fun, but it's like you have a job. You've got to go to work. You don't get off just because something fun. He says, I think Randy Johnson's going to be in the mound. Well, once again, that's fine. But, you know, and I went back to this personal responsibility lecture, and he says, I think Alice Cooper's going to sing the national anthem. And he's going, and, and I kept coming back to perfect, and you could just see the poor kid is just getting so frustrated with me. And finally, he got kind of quiet, but very respectful. He said, listen, Dad, I bring you home straight A's. All I've ever brought you home are straight A's. I can't bring you home any better grades than I'm bringing you. Now, you need to decide whether I can go to that game. It was like one of them big old divine hands came right down out of the clouds and did one of these right in the top of my head, Will you sign him out and stop this nonsense? What is wrong with you? And, and I realized what a fool I was. Here's the, here's the ironic thing. He did not get those straight A's from my side of the gene pool. That's from his mother's side. I struggled in school. I felt you should have vowels and consonants on your report card. See, look, Dad. <laughs> it's a find-a-word game. See, I see three. Like, can, by the way, can you sign it right underneath there? And, but here's the other thing. I would have never asked my dad to sign me out of school. I'd have just played hooky. I wouldn't have asked. It was so foolish. I reached in my pocket and took out two, two large bills and I handed them to him and said, Cody, make sure you buy the big hot dogs and drinks for you and Stephen. And Cody, please forgive me for being such an idiot. Now listen, you know, as you get older, the memories of childhood fade. They just do. It's sometimes you have... It's just a blur. And that incident could well fade from Cody's mind, but if I'd have held my ground and refused to sign him out, he'd have never forgotten the day he died. What an idiot he had for a dad. We get it wrong. They need to have a respectful outlet to talk to us about that. Now, one of the best ways to guarantee or at least uh, incline them to be respectful to us when they're voicing our fr their frustration with us is be respectful to them when you're, res when you're voicing your frustration with your children. Here's a good verse on this. It says, see to it, this is uh, Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many Grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be different, vulnerable, can't last. When they give the, free, the kids they love the freedom to make mistakes, to make mistakes. Now, I don't mean by that that there aren't rules and regulations, nor do I mean by that that there aren't consequences for their mistakes. I'm just saying that home is where life is. Chuck Swindoll says, home is where life is making up its mind. If, 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 if your children are going to struggle with sin in their life, I don't know about you, but I, speaking for me, and I think that we'd all agree, wouldn't you rather them do that under your roof 
than, than after an adult out on her own when the stakes are so much higher. Wrestle with it here. We can help you. Now we, we are going to have to stand on your air hose. We're going to have to give you consequences. But we love you too much to stand idly by and watch you self-destruct. We're going we're to discipline you. But it's where, it's, it's, it's where it's got to be a place where they can work this stuff through. Now where did I get these four things from? I got it from how Jesus deals with you and me. He gives us the freedom to be different and vulnerable and candid and the freedom to make mistakes. And all grace-based families are. Parenting is simply treating your kids the way he treats you. 